When she was in college in Korea, Ten Kwan had a brilliant idea to launch a green t-shirt business hiring single moms and immigrant women. And it was a huge flop. The failure taught her how hard it is to raise money for a startup. And now at 32, Ten knows all about money. But her job didn't get any easier. She fights what she calls the pale, male, and stale, trying to convince wealthy people to invest sustainably. I'm just angry at these things and I need to somehow get rid of it by fixing the problem. So for me, it's not an option to give up. I'm Yash Pavlik-Slank, and this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Today on the show, we'll speak to Ten Kwan, head of wealth management programs at the University of Zurich. She'll tell us all about her passion for sustainable investing, why she helped launch a group to get more women into the field, and how she stalked a man at a party to get her current job. Welcome to Degrees, Ten. Hey, thanks for having me. Ten, you were interested in ethical fashion. You started this business, but ultimately it failed, like many startups. And other entrepreneurs could easily have decided that trying to do a business sustainably just doesn't work. It doesn't pay. Why didn't you do that? Uh, that's an interesting question. So I think if you come much more from the entrepreneur side saying that, okay, hey, I want to make money. I want to make this business run. And then you're using social entrepreneurship or sustainability as um, additional layer to make your enterprise more interesting to multiple stakeholders, including yourself. Then perhaps after that flop, that business does not work and you still want to continue having business. I come from the other end where I've been interested in social justice and I wanted to use the tools available that are out there to uh, create a more just society or a more sustainable society. So when I realized that, hey, my business doesn't work, it didn't mean for me to stop social entrepreneurship. It meant more, let me try to figure out different tools and attach them to this machine called the market mechanism to make this work better. You say you're on a mission to fight the pale, male and stale. Who exactly is that enemy and, and how are you fighting it? The pale, male and stale, it's um, just a nickname given by a lot of sustainability, <laughs> passionate people and to, towards the stagnated people who sit at the top level of the decision-making ladder. And these are usually uh, men who have been trained by the traditional business and finance sector who are old, close to retirement and are usually white. And they don't know it any other way. They just don't perceive the world like we do. They look at things from one perspective. And this is also why diversity is so important, right? And they think it's normal to see things that way. And that's the only way you can see it things because everybody around them who are also pale, male and stale see it that way. So they, yeah, they just need to change their decision-making processes. And for that, you need more diversity. So in that sense, 
um, I guess you might be talking about the Women in Sustainable Finance that I perhaps founded. But so I always try to speak up for women's rights and gender equality. And um, to a certain extent, perhaps also a little bit more racial diversity as well, since I moved to Switzerland. And your title is now head of wealth management programs at the University of Zurich. What do you do exactly? Is it research? Is it hands-on? How do you spend your day? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question because it seems to change all the time. And I have to say, it's strange to say this, but our academic center, it's almost like a startup. It's a very entrepreneurial driven environment, which is why I love it so much. So the center was founded under the premise of there's there are 17 sustainable development goals that we need to somehow achieve to make our society function on the long term. And for that, we need to finance this. And where do we find all of this investments, all of this capital? Well, we've tried institutional investors like pension funds, insurances, and they're very slow in their decision-making processes. So what you mentioned, like the pale, male, and stale, they're basically sitting at the top of the decision-making chain. And who is then fast in decision-making and has a lot of money? It's actually billionaires and millionaires and the families. They can move money so fast. For instance, when the Notre Dame in here in France burned down, well, within the first six minutes, they moved 300 million. Incredible. Right? And that's just incredibly fast. So we thought, hey, we have a crisis. We need fast capital. Let's go and, and you know, uh, knock down the door of these private wealthy individuals. So we're teaching these wealthy individuals all about sustainable investing and impact investing and how you could have an impact or sustainability lens throughout your entire investment activities and decision-making processes. At the same time, we also do a lot of research because there's not that much research on sustainable investing and how to have impact specifically. So, and then we're also trying to engage the entire value chain. So the wealth managers, all the advisors and all the, all the funds, for instance. And now coming to my role, I call myself a pracademic sitting somewhere between practice and academia. And I do research that is heavily practitioner inspired and not just academic, just not an intellectual exercise for self-satisfaction. I also do a lot of teaching activities and outreach activities for practitioners and these wealth owners. How many people are you trying to influence who can move this massive money around quickly and who needs to be educated on how to uh, invest sustainably? And how many people are you working with as part of the center? When we're talking specifically for about wealth owners, right, um, we're talking about probably globally around 2000 families. And it's among these 2,000 families, there are a handful that are interested in impact and sustainability. And each year, our cohort is um, perhaps around 30 to 35 people. 2,000 families, that's not that many. I, I mean, you probably know most of them by name or at least by last name. What's their reaction when you invite them to participate in this program? You know, they may feel like they're very well resourced and experienced having managed money for generations and wealth for generations. But now they're being asked to invest and think about their investments in a new way. How do they respond 
to that email or that phone call? Actually, it's funny. It's the other way around. We're an um, education program and they usually through word of mouth come to us and apply for this. And then we go through a whole recruiting and selecting process. And so usually it's, it's them coming voluntarily to the program. I come from a very strong middle-class background and my parents were PhDs, so <laughs> I don't come from wealth at all. And I always had this impression that wealthy people know what to do with their money, which is actually completely wrong. You know, the, That's what I would guess. Right? And the, the weird, the irony about having money and having wealth is to not having to think about money. That's the freedom that you get. You know, when you're limited by money, you have to think about, oh, how much am I paying for my vacation? Or how much is this lunch going to cost me? When you come from wealth, these are questions typically that you don't actually question much about your investment activities or how you're spending and how what your money is doing in general, because it's always just there. And so ironically, not a lot of these people actually know much about investing they're doctors or photographers or psychiatrists by, by their job profession. And they're, they just don't know anything about investing. Well, I can really relate to your side of the story. I also come from a strong middle-class background. And at 32, at your age, I was very much worried about just making rent, much less having the freedom to go anywhere and do anything and buy anything. Um, so interesting that you're getting to speak to this audience. And what's motivating them to come to you? Why are they interested in sustainable finance and uh, and approaching their investments in what is relatively a new way. Some claim there's a business case towards sustainable investing that, um, you know, you, you're you limiting your ESG risk, so environmental, social and governance risk, and you're, um, you just have more information when you're considering all of these sustainability factors so that eventually it leads to better financial return. And... This is what we usually call the business case of sustainable investing. I believe it's a way for, again, more reason-driven people to somehow justify their inner passion for sustainability because they don't dare talk about emotion or values. And they're all scared because people, oh my goodness, will see that I'm a hippie and a tree hugger. But actually the reality of sustainable investing is if you're not interested in sustainability at all, then just the business case will never get you there. So the second much stronger case is the social impact side that if, especially if you come from a generation of philanthropic family activities and so on and so forth, you are interested in social and environmental impact. So in the European side of the continent, people are very much um I'd say sensitized towards the environmental issues and climate issues. I'd say there are a lot of wealthy families that come from more developing economies as well. And they actually see the social and political climate around them. And because it's so prevalent in their environment, they're much more aware and they want to have more social impact in that side and give back to society. So that's one factor. And then the third one, it's what we call in our center, the experiential factor. And this is actually the funny part of private wealth, that you as a wealth owner, sometimes, especially if you're an inheritor, don't connect to your wealth at all. 
it's something that your parents or grandparents or you, the former generation have built up and just handed over to you and you don't know what to do with it. It doesn't feel like yours, but it doesn't feel like somebody else's either. And you somehow are given the responsibility to um, cater for this thing. And you feel a lot of guilt, actually, that comes with it. And all of this brings you to this place. How can I provide more meaning to this massive responsibility and power and influence that I have? And this brings them to impact investing and eventually to us. And how many of these families are from the U.S.? I would say maybe 40 percent. It's fairly representative of how the, if you look at the distribution of ultra high net worth, so anyone who has above 50 million on a wealth report, then the majority is usually in the US, then the other majority is Western Europe, and then the rest is somewhat distributed within Asia and then Latin America and then other countries. Now, let's talk about impact. How about impact? Does sustainable investing, you know, you've gotten people through this journey. They care about uh, these issues. They want to use their money and direct their portfolios in a new, more sustainable way. But does sustainable investing really make a difference? Actually, that's a really good question that one that my colleagues have actually done uh, a really good research on. Basically, investing in stocks and divesting from stocks doesn't make much of an impact because you can sell, sure, you can sell your stocks from oil and gas. Just another normal investor not interested in sustainability will just buy it off your hands. So the stock price doesn't change at all. And so that doesn't make a difference. What does have an impact, though, is when you're voting and engaging on what you own. So if you as a shareholder say, hey, company, by the way, have you looked into this issue? I heard there's this terrible thing that you should probably address called climate change. And then they are a bit more attuned to listening to you because you're a shareholder. So that is one strategy you can do. The other one that does have impact is investing in private market products uh, or a private market in general, because the flow of capital is not as efficient. So any investment that you make, it has more additionality because the likelihood of that in, um, that company having been founded or making it through the next round um, without your capital is less likely. I love that you said essentially the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I hear that in these interviews all the time, whether it's investing or uh, product packaging or it's a healthcare system. If you complain as a stakeholder, doesn't matter if you have a small share or a large share, helps if you have a large share. It really does make a difference. People re respond to that. Yeah, actually, this this is really funny. I mean, my favorite story on engagement is actually nuns, these group of nuns. And I don't come from a faith background, but because of my research topics, I started looking into religious investors. And it's so inspiring how radical these nuns are. I mean, there are groups of nuns that will that are so progressive when it comes to impact investing, because a lot of them come from this background of being activist and being social justice warriors and standing up for the poor and going to needed areas. In the US especially, they uh, built the backbone of the healthcare industry and then sold these hospitals or elderly care homes to private 
corporations. They're sitting on a lot of capital because of that, or, you know, quite a sizable capital. But because nobody wants to become nuns anymore, they're all dying out. Incredible. We need we need to get a nun on this show. You should definitely. And that's also the funny part. The priests usually don't do this. It's the nuns that do it. I love it. I love that they're taking advantage of their moment. Great. Again, women ruling the world. Very inspiring. Let's talk about YSEF or Women in Sustainable Finance. Along with other professionals, you helped co-found that group. Why did you start it and what does it do? So Women in Sustainable Finance is, um, an, first and foremost, I would say a network organization and sort of a platform for well women interested in sustainable finance. It's a funny story because, well, through the university, I've created this training program for advisors. And I was sitting there with Marta and Edith, who are my co-founders. And we were talking, complaining just casually about the financial sector in Switzerland and how it was so, so male dominance and how it was so frustrating. And then we were saying, but hey, all three of us are women and we're talking about this. So there seems to be something in sustainable finance that seems to attract women. And we thought, let's put the two together and see what comes out of it. And what came out of it was actually quite an amazing community of women who are either already in finance or who are interested in sustainable finance. And yeah, that's how it was created. And what's frustrating about being in a male-dominated sector? Oh, so many things. In my case, I talk about sustainable finance and I know what I'm talking about, but the minute you're a woman talking about sustainability issues, you're considered as, ah, okay, that's a female topic. Oh, sure. You care about the environment. Oh, you feel for, I don't know, si single mothers or immigrants. Great. Good for you. Yeah. Pat on the head. Exactly. <laughs> so it's considered instead of being taken seriously and that this is, well, first of all, also a business matter, but also, you know, a societal matter that long term, this is a serious topic that requires a lot of competence, a lot of intellectual um, capability behind it. It's disregarded as this feel good type of soft communication, marketing type of topic. And that is really, really frustrating. Mm -hmm. That sounds incredibly frustrating. It sounds infuriating. It sounds like uh, you're, it sounds isolating because I imagine you are the only woman in the room in many cases. Did you ever think about giving up? I think if I could give up, I would have a long time ago. But <laughs> I'm just angry at these things and I, I need to somehow get rid of it by fixing the problem. So for me, it's not an option to give up. But how do you cope in the moment when you're sitting in a room with other investors, knowing that they have a perceived presence of your motivations and your skill set? Um, what do you do? Well, there are many other things that can be done, but I think on a personal level, they're just little tricks that I that I do. Um, one is I know it sounds super cliche, but it's power posing. Sure. For instance, when I go into a room and there was this one occasion, it was a wealth manager and it was an older guy who, who, you know, just judging by my name and our email correspondence, didn't expect me, um, like a 160 centimeter woman 
of the age of 32 walking in the door. He probably expected a man because my name is also gender neutral in Korean. So uh, when I walked in, he was like, oh, it's so pleasant to have a, a, a young, nice female uh, present in the room. <laughs> he, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he meant it as a compliment oh, and he was I, a nice person. Of but course. anyway, we've all been there, right? And I thought, okay, I need this person to take me seriously. So I, instead of, you know, sitting my hands and close to the desk and being attentive and listening, signaling that I'm listening I just sat back into my chair and you know spread my legs and I was like yeah you know what (laughs) she's demonstrating this listeners by the way and I I see what you're saying that's not how you naturally have a conversation uh being very engaged and very attentive so this was a real character change for you yeah it catches them off guard because they don't expect Um, women to do power posing or you know just lean back and sit back into the door when it's usually your job to be a bit more like taking notes or being attentive as a listener so it makes them change the perception on you and then second for me it's also like you know if I'm more comfortable sitting like that it also gives me a bit the confidence because it's like yeah you already set back like body gesture so you sort of cross the line already and there's no no going back in a way there's no going back <laughs> there's no going back from from that pose so you might as well just roll with it so that's the second part that um, I put pressure for myself to actually speak up and be more confident and then the third part, if, you know, if, if it's like a group situation and the dynamics are just terrible and you sometimes feel a bit trapped and there are occasions like that where I think, oh, you know, should I speak up or should I not? And, you know, I'm in my head contemplating those options. Then I think that of myself as representing women, if I had another colleague in this situation and she would be contemplating that, well, what would I give her as an advice? probably in like nine out of 10 cases, I would say, go girl, go for it, because you shouldn't be held back. And that's usually how I think as my role. You're young to be in charge of something like this, but you didn't start your career in finance. You had your t-shirt business, but after that folded, no pun intended, you worked in branding and communication. What made you switch to sustainable finance and and how exactly did you get that job? I actually heard a story that you stalked your boss at a party. Is that right? Yes, that is right. (laughs) So, I mean, through the previous steps, I realized that first of all, as a social entrepreneur, there are limits to how much you can change the system. Second, as a consultant, nobody really listens to you in our very capitalistic society the only thing people will really listen to is capital, which is what we, what got me interested in sustainable and impact investing. So when I was finishing up my master's program, I was looking for a thesis topic on sustainable and impact investing to get a foothold into the industry, like a lot of master's students do, right? They use their master's thesis strategically to get into a sector. And I was talking a bunch of other people as well on LinkedIn. Friendly, Friendly stalking. stalking. I mean, it's... Everybody does it these days. <laughs> and it's meant to be flattering. And I think I contacted around 15 people out of 15, 12 told me, oh, you need to talk to talk to this guy called Falco Petzold. He just founded the center at Zurich University and he should 
he's perfect. So when 12 out of 15 tell you to do that, you probably should do that. So I sent him a bunch of emails that he never replied to. And I was, I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Because nobody gave me any other name. So it's like I was running out of option and out of time. And then I realized that he had founded this other sustainability related um, yeah, network called Green Bus. And they were having their yearly summer party at a certain date. And I was like, well, he's the founder. He must be at the yearly summer he's party. He's going to be exactly. there. Exactly. So I got myself a ticket to show up at the summer party and went there. And I was just trying to talk to people, figure out who Falco was, because <laughs> I didn't know how he looked like. And then eventually, towards the end of the party, um, he was there. And he was probably on his fourth beer or something, very, very happy. And I just told him like, hey, Falco, by the way, I sent you a bunch of emails and you didn't reply to me, non, no offense taken, but I would really like to write a thesis with you. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know what? We have actually a project. Uh, maybe you're interested. Uh, just send me your proposal or whatever. We'll talk. Sorry about that. And I'll reply to you tomorrow. So that's actually how I got the project and eventually led to the job. And well, five years later, I'm still there. Beer and parties. It's part of people's professional journeys that we still that we're looking forward to getting back Absolutely. as as COVID moves on and we can and we can get back out there. Now, on the personal note, I have some quick and dirty personal questions that we're asking all of our guests and it's kind of rapid fire so just go with your gut you have to choose one or the other all right are you ready okay okay yes mountain or beach beach pet or plant Ooh, plant power or money oh power tell me about that why power i hang out a lot with wealthy people so what I realized is that you, you don't actually need to have a private jet or a beach house or a mountain hut or whatever. You just need to have a friend that has access to it. <laughs> and it's a bit like, you know, having a boyfriend that has a that has a dog. You don't want to take care of the dog. You want to play with the dog. The boyfriend can take care of the dog. So, you know, essentially power just gives you access to so many things. Ten, I have one more question for you. What is one thing that someone listening to this interview right now, someone who cares about the same things that you do, can do to make a difference? So there's three things that I think are important when it comes to um, yeah, sustainable investing for people like us. First thing is your cash. Where do you put? Where, you, where do you bank with? Because usually, so these banks then usually use the, their balance sheet to lend to oil and gas companies. Or you could also go to a community bank where they lend it to, let's say, community or social entrepreneurs. So you have alternative banks. And this matters a lot. So that's something you can um, choose. Second is your pension fund. And you can ask your pension fund, hey, what are you doing related to climate risk, social risk, governance risk? Any sustainability issues? Are you voting on all the investment activities? And this also makes a really big difference. The third thing, which is an asset that not a lot of people think about, is your time. 
And for me, this is my most valuable asset. I make use of my time, aka my career, to address sustainability-related issues. Currently, it's sitting in research and a lot of training activities. Before, it was in consulting and marketing. In the future, who knows where it'll go? But I think that's also definitely something that you or anybody listening to this podcast will probably want to do. I'm taking notes. I have to think about all of those things for myself, even being in this world. So I really appreciate that. Well, Ten, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being on Degrees. Thank you for having me. In the next episode of Degrees. I found respite in the melodic powers of the outdoors. I could not believe how healing and therapeutic it was to just walk a trail to climb a mountain. Jason Swan recovered from a trauma in the wilderness of Colorado. He'll tell us why falling in love with the state turned him into an environmental activist and how he navigates the white environmental world as a black man. And that's it for this episode of Degrees. You can find links to the resources in this episode and the entire series in your listening app. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Amy Morse is our producer. Our executive producers are Rick Ballou and Christina Mestre. Podcast Allies is our production company, and I am your host, Yesh Pavlik-Slink. But the foundation of this show, folks, is you. Share this episode with a friend and find your planet-saving careers together. Thanks for listening. Change is coming.